Hey everyone, this is uh, Dave Broadback sitting here. It's August of 2019 and I'm getting ready for the term. Uh, you may be here. It's really hot right now in here, in this room, but you may be listening to this when it's very cold. Isn't the internet amazing? Anyway, this is uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from Psych 4006, the history of psychology for the 2019 fall term. Hope you enjoy it. So, and how you creatively synthesize things, you put things together. So, he wasn't saying that all that other stuff was unimportant, he was just saying it's a different kind of psychology. Is his most important contribution the perception stuff? Yeah, of course it is. But you can't ignore this other stuff he said. Okay. So, <clears throat> most people, when they hear about Freud, and when I learned history of psychology, I was taught that he was this hardcore experimentalist and nothing else. Like, that was the standard view. And you know, I was taught history of psychology in 1987, a long time ago. Um, but still, the idea that Novelty and creativity were important in mental processes. was not something that ever went into the class I was taught, the course I took. And Wood thought that. And he talked about the idea of motives and means-ends analysis, that kind of thing. The kind of stuff we talk about today, we talk about cognition. So that was where we were. So what this is telling us is you have to keep doing history. So when I say a history lesson, it's about something called historiography, which is Historiography is how historians do history. And history majors hate their historiography courses like you hate methods and stats courses. Because that's what they are. They're, they're methods courses. It's no fun, that stuff. You have to know it, but it's no fun. So this tells us, and I think that paper we talked about the other day also is about this, about how we have to keep doing history, keep looking back, that the story is very rarely completely told. So the old view was promoted by Titchener, who was a student of an Englishman, but it was, uh, went to Germany and got his PhD at Leipzig, uh, was a student of Wundt's. And because Boring, <laughs> this guy's name was Boring, 
who wrote the first history of psych book in the 20s, was a student of Titchener's. So he believed everything Titchener said, and Titchener had a bias. Titchener's bias was, yes, of course, everything is quite structured. Yes, very good. Perhaps we could have some sherry. I imagine he drank a lot of sherry. You'll see a picture of him in a second, and he will say, yes, he clearly drank a lot of sherry. So the need to use the outcome of renewing interest in history. Uh, the new, new idea of history is this, of history book Wundt, is that he's a much more, comp is a much more complicated view of how psychology works. Like I said, I still think his most important <coughs> contribution is the sensation perception stuff. That's pretty obvious. So it tells you something that the renewed interest in cognition in the 70s, you know, the cognitive revolution is basically has won the day in the 19th, by the time the 1970s roll around. And run into that. So People weren't interested in cognition that much, as much, in the 60s, the 50s, the 40s, the 30s, the 20s. Okay? So what else is going on with the Germans? Ebbinghaus, big guy. If, if you've taken memory with me, you've heard about Ebbinghaus, you've literally seen that very picture, because that's the picture everyone uses. I believe that's the one in Wikipedia. I don't know. I, uh, selected it and dragged it into this presentation from another presentation that I'm pretty sure I probably got it from Wikipedia originally. Um, he was a very, uh, he was the first person to investigate memory experimentally. Okay. He also uh, didn't have a mouth, just a beard, as you can see in the picture. Uh, he was born without a mouth, and uh, the beard was to cover the fact that his mouth was literally just a slit in his face. I'm obviously kidding. But, that looks like that could be true. So, associationism was the thought about how higher mental processes work. So he thought, I was studying the formation of associations, because that's how he talked. He spoke in a ridiculous faux German accent, but he spoke English. Again, obviously that isn't true. So he invents the idea of studying the nonsense syllable. Does everybody here know about Ebbinghaus? Tell me if you don't know about Ebbinghaus. You've heard it. You've all heard it, right? So it's the constant of bell constant approach. Um, so, who invented So he comes up with this idea, well, I will not study words because uh, some words are easier to remember than others. That's actually something, it's a good piece of control. It's probably unnecessary. But that's fine. So I will come up with these constant L constant trigrams. So I've got to come up with something that means nothing. Now, I don't know if cab means something in German, but it means nothing in English. So we're going to use it. It's not long enough to be a German word. German is all this long. And he would make up these lists. Hab and then... learn them himself to perfection. You know, today, interestingly, we, we don't use constant not constant trigrams, and you'd think that would be a great idea. We actually use English or German or whatever words 
because you, there are words, word lists out there that, that are listed by their, their um, occurrence in English language. Like, that's, that's actually, used to be they would publish things that you have to go right away to somebody. Now you find them on the internet. No big deal. So it's easy to come up with lists of words. But it's a good piece of control. So he comes up with these nonsense syllables, these constant about constant trigrams, and um, and he thought, I will sequence them, and I will learn them in sequence until I'm perfect at them. Because they're not going to have any pre-existing associations because they are, they don't have any meaning. Right? Tab, taf, gog. Is that, <coughs> those, those, that's, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. Okay? So this is what's called a serial learning task. Kind of a cool idea. Especially when he invented it. You talk about it today and you think, yeah, of course. But he did this for first principles. That's very, that's very clever. Most of us don't do things like that. They go, well, here's a whole new way to look at something. And the n is equal to 1. What I mean by that is he studied himself. And no other subjects. And you think, wait a second, he's all into control, yet he's studying himself? Well, you know what? Makes sense when you think about it. First of all, how are you going to get subjects to do this over and over? Because he did this every day. But the second thing is, my memory should work like your memory should work like your memory should work like Ebbinghaus's memory. Should, the rules should be the same. And this is not a lot in psychophysics. There's an old tradition in psychophysics of having one subject of an experiment, often the experimenter. There's nothing wrong with that, because everyone's perceptual system ought to work exactly the same way unless you have some kind of disorder. Right? We typically. When we have like honor students that want to do experiments, they want to, very common, some of you guys are in the honor student. I always ask my students, well, how many subjects do you want? And they always, it's participants, but I'm going to say subjects, my class. How many subjects do you want? And they always say the same thing, well, as many as I can get. And it's like, no, you don't want as many as you can get. You want as, as few as you can get to get a result. And a student a few years ago, oh, geez, might have been 2016, 2015, Cassidy McDougall. Cassidy was great, and her thesis was on when does a square become a circle? Or was it a rectangle? No, when does a square become a rectangle? You're thinking, huh? It's a perceptual question. You look at a, an object, and, you, and the people's they were to respond, square or rectangle? Now, you might think that's kind of an odd question. Yet, if you probably <coughs> notice there's a difference between the sides, you're going to call it a square. Eventually, you notice and call it a rectangle. She said, how many subjects? I said, how many subjects do you want to go to test? She said, 30. I said, how's, how's two? We can do it with two. And she said, I don't know if they'll let me. I said, it'll be five. And I think she ran five people. Now, they were tested for three hours at a time. So when they signed up, she said, like, you're going to have to do this for a long period. You can leave at any time. Blah, blah, blah. You will get incredibly bored. Ask if you want to take a break. All those kind of things. But I think she tested, it was like three or five people. For a couple, two, couple, three hours. Lots of data. Everybody's, and it turned out everybody's system did work the same. Of course it does. 
So he tested with one person, but it's not like it's a, it's a crazy idea. That's not a methodological flaw in this case. So Ebby, which of course was his friend, and his buddies called him on the street. So what did he find? And most of you guys know this stuff. He was the first person to report that he couldn't remember lists of more than seven items, plus or minus two. In other words, you know how 60 odd years later, they talk about the magic number seven, plus or minus two? He found it before that. Um, so maximum CVCs, in other words, repeated accurately after just one reading was seven. That's what it means it's in your short-term memory, short-term short memory, short-term store. Today we say working memory and phonological loop, but and he found that the more he repeated these lists, the better he'd get at them. Again, obvious, right? But he's the first person to do it, so we've got to give him credit. That's pretty great. And he talked about the advantage of distributed practice. Instead of just learning, just sitting and staring at them over and over, he would take breaks. Sometimes. Other times he didn't take breaks. And he found he'd get better when he took breaks. And this is one of those things that is true with every kind of learning. Right? No matter what your organism is, you could be a nematode or a human, you could be learning to avoid this part of the Petri dish if you're a nematode because there's higher, a higher concentration of potassium and you don't like that. Or you could be a human learning to do calculus. And you guys have all learned, you know now, because you've been in university long enough that cramming before a test doesn't work nearly as well as studying three or four nights in a row, little bouts, maybe half an hour, take a break. You either learn that because someone told you that, or you learn it because you find out that, oh, if I plan things out and study these small bouts, I'd be way better. He's the first person to talk about this. And it's true, like I said, in every form of learning. That's the great thing about it. Not just learning lists of, of, of nonsense syllables. He found that sometimes there were these things he called remote associations. Like, he would see... Pab, let's say, and he would think to himself, it reminded him of something, and it would just come to mind. So it showed him that things, that your mind is active, and it's sort of off searching for associations. He found the time course of forgetting, the classic forgetting curve. He's the first person to find the forgetting curve. This is all stuff, again, we take this for granted. He found that there was savings. In other words, if I learned a list, and now I, I, now, I have now learned this list to perfection, I can get the whole list done, I will now move on to another list. Obviously, Ebbinghaus had really exciting days. Imagine that's your day. So I would have a coffee. So I would eat some sausage because I'm German. So I would learn a list to perfection and take a break. And learn another list. That's, that's his day. I would take a break by learning some more lists. He'd then get to a point where he'd forgotten one of the lists. He'd pull it back out and look at it and go, I've forgotten this one. And relearn it, and it took him less time to relearn. Savings. Now think about this. This is true again in every kind of learning. Freaking habituation, the simplest form of learning at all, or even physical things in people, right? Or 
Some of you people are, are, are is, is people better than guys? I say guys a lot. Is it people? People's better, you think? Okay. I'm using it completely whatever, but like that better than that. So if people are sitting around and you're trying to learn uh, like things for GRE or for the MCAT, right? Some of you are doing those kind of things. And you go, oh, there's uh, analytical geometry on this. I haven't done that in a while. Grade 10. I know there is an angle side angle. I just don't know what it is. And you remember you learned it probably in the <coughs> it took you three weeks to get a good feel for analytical geometry. You can relearn it in an hour. It's still in there somewhere. So that's something sort of cognitive, but you can even think of something like the first time you put a pair of skates on in the winter. Right? First time you put your skates on, you go, ooh, that's funny. I'll, I'll buy it. Right? And then you never stumble like that again. Or the first time you ride your, if you haven't ridden a bike in like 10 years, the first time you get on a bike, it feels a little weird, then you're fine. Yeah? So same things happens all the time. So he's the first person to talk about that. Pretty cool. So as I mentioned, the forgetting curve, and here's the forgetting curve, right? So 100% going down, he gets over to 31 days, he's not very good at it. You're getting this very rapid initially, and then it evens out, right? This is anything else. And everything else was um, as important to cognitive psychology and learning as Wundt is to perception sensation. I'd say that's pretty clear. Okay. What is apt psychology? It is a term. Uh, kind of psychology, act meaning action, and about intention. And it was uh, a, a school, you know a school of psychology? It just means a way of thinking. They didn't actually have schools. Okay? Like it's a school of thought. <clears throat> and it was come up with by many friends, Brentano. Sounds like it sounds like a, a designer, right? What are you wearing? I'm wearing Brentano, or it could be a cologne of some sort. Brentano. So that you know, there he is, long hair, which is a different look back then. Act is active. So the mind is active. Okay, it's also really weird his approach to psychology. So I'll break it down a little bit, yo. But it's really a little weird to me at least. Okay, this is okay. Inner observation and inner perception. There are perceptions you have of the universe and observations you have of things you think of. Yeah, okay, I guess you could say that's probably okay. I can see, I know it's true, but I can see why you would differentiate those things. Um, so he had this classification system for mental phenomena, and it works like this. Um, there's three intertwined categories of thought. There are presentations, judgments, and desires. Okay. Now, the example he used, the presentation is the thought itself. The, I shouldn't say image. We'll go with image for now. 
I don't think he, he wasn't big on images, really. Okay. Now, this is the example he used. And now I'm not going to use the example he used. Yeah, because I'm not. Because it's a Yeah. So I'll use something else. Um, first one could be okay. So that's a presentation that happens in my, I, I, I perceive it. I have no way, according to Brentano, by the way, of knowing that the table actually exists. So obviously he's been high a lot. But so you think table. Then I make a judgment about the table. Does the table exist? The table may, may or may not exist, yet I'm going to make a judgment saying it does based on my inner, my thought. And then I may have some desire about it, some emotion, some emotional tag I'll put on it. There's also things that we can imagine that aren't real, or may, or may be real, may not be real. So I can imagine, I don't know, a centaur. Half horse, half man. There you go. I can imagine that. <coughs> then I make a, that's the presentation. Then I make a judgment. Is that a real thing? And there aren't any. And just to let you know, spoiler alert, that's just mythology. And then I also still have this quote, desires about this, which would be like, what do I think about centaurs? I don't know, they remind me of the old Hercules cartoon. Which you have seen. Hey, Herc. So again, he takes the position, and it's an old position, an old tradition of the scholastic philosophers, they're called, and they believe that there was no way that you could prove the existence of anything. But if you can't prove something exists, <coughs> if you can't prove something exists, the only thing you can do, the only way to give it value that it exists is by your decision that it does or does not exist. Again, it sounds like something people who are kind of high say. Right? So you're saying it doesn't exist? Cool. <coughs> As an empiricist and a rationalist, so a little bit of both, when people say things like that to me, you can't prove something exists, I say, just stand still. I'm going to punch you in the face. Tell me if that exists. Because you've got a pretty good, clear idea that it exists. And I'm not, I, never, I don't hit people because I can't see it. Also, it's wrong. But there's a utilitarian approach, which is I'll get the shit kicked out of me. <laughs> the big influence he has, no one thinks like this today, right? Like, it's, a, it's kind of crazy. And it, even if you can't determine that there's reality, we know there's a reality, so move on. Like, psychology doesn't think about those things. We leave that to the philosophers. They can be over here thinking about that, sitting in their leather chairs. Um, but he influences Gestalt psychology a lot, and you'll learn a lot of Gestalt psychology, but he's, he really influences it a lot. Uh, and the idea of existentialism, which we'll talk about as well. Um, functionalism to a point, too, because the function of thinking is to determine if things exist, make a judgment about them, and have emotions about them. He'd be one of these guys that would be hard to argue with because you'd be going, oh, Jesus, a lot, I think. You go, oh, come on. Oh, come on. 
and doing a lot of that. But he's very influential. He was not on good terms with the people in the Würzburg school, like Kudba, and you pronounce that like that because it's no over you. And I think he is the most German-looking person I've ever seen. My name is Kudba. They developed a school. Uh, the Würzburg approach is systematic experimental <coughs> introspection, and. We have to do, we have this idea of fractionalism. We have to divide what we're studying up into, because memory is going to affect everything. I like that. It's probably true. So we have to find methods that are not affected by memory. Fraction up the mind. You see? They were big into studying mental sets. These are the first people that talked about mental sets and how you get, even without knowing it, into a way of thinking. A way of thinking. Mental sets. Do you know what mental sets? Yeah? You know the nine dot problem? Right? So. So the nine dot problem. Let's see if I can do this properly. Okay. Does anybody not know this problem? Okay, Clark doesn't know. Anybody else doesn't know? Okay, Saki doesn't know. The rest of you know the solution. Connect these nine dots with four straight lines, that, and your pen, paper, or whatever cannot leave the page. That's a mental set. This is a mental set problem. Can you do that? Don't yell at the answer when you figure out the answer, or if you know it, don't, figure, don't yell at it. Okay, who has the solution? Don't say what it is, but put your hand up if you have the solution. Okay, so some of you actually don't know it. You just never put your hands up because you're lazy, horrible people. So, <laughs> so you don't know this problem, right? Unless that's your thing. I don't care. When I show you the solution, which I will in about 10 seconds. Yeah, you got it? No, you said four straight lines? Mm-hmm. And your pen cannot leave the paper. So you, they've got to be connect. You've always got to be connecting. Yeah, it's hard, right? It's hard until I show you how it's done. Just like that. I never said you couldn't leave the confines of the dock. Right? I didn't say that. I said connect them all with four straight lines. Right? Wow. But when I give you things like that, you have this boundary. You gave it to yourself. I did not say anything about, and don't leave the boundaries of the deal. I didn't say that.
it's fun doing teaching like that in like an intro psych class because there's 85 people in the room and somebody does get it and you hear them. You actually hear people make these gasps when they figure it out. This is a cool phenomenon and it happens all the time. <coughs> this happens all the time. Um, my dad would used to work for a bank, he was a bank manager for years before he was a music store, and there's a strange career choice and the ship, which was a good one for him. But he was at some leadership conference because you know they go to those stupid things. And they had to put him up, put him into teams, and they were teams of people that didn't work together. They were from all over Canada, and they were told to build a house of cards. Each team. And the team that had their best house of cards that was still standing after I don't know, half an hour was going to win the prize. And I don't know what the prize was, but my dad would do anything if there was any kind of competition. So they're doing this thing, and then at the end, there's like 10 teams, and then they're, they're counting down the person who's facilitating this workshop, and I keep doing this, and I don't know why. And they go, 10, 9. My dad walks around at every other table and just knocks all their cards down. Bang, bang, bang. And the, the facilitator person said, you can't do that. And my dad said, you never said I couldn't do that. That's a creative solution. The guy said, you're right. You guys win. So it's really kind of amazing. Um, it's mean. It's fun mean. Uh, that's what my dad was. He was fun mean. But it shows a mental set thing. And the Würzburg people were really into this. This idea that you get caught in, in sort of implicit rules that actually aren't rules. Right? These implicit rules aren't rules. They also like the idea of imageless thought. Brentano, you can see, he's thinking, like, is that a table? I see a table. Or an idea of a table. These guys are like, no, there's no images. Thoughts are imageless. It seems like there's images. You may, images may be conjured up, but the thought, the process of thought itself is not an image-driven thing. And your conscious attitudes affect how you do something. I didn't tell you you couldn't go outside where those nine dots were, but you all did it like, like that, right? Did, was anybody trying to come up with another solution that where you went outside the lines or anything like that, or we were all thinking, I've got to stay in those nine dots. You're all thinking stay inside the dots, right? Because that's, it's implicit. It's the idea that we have implicit thought. It's the idea that, and this is true, today we would say this, that a very small percentage of our cognition is available to consciousness. Almost all of it is unavailable. Right? But even things like these higher order things, it involves rules that I never said that were rules. This happens sometimes over the years when there's weird innovations in sports, these things happen. So you'll see the owner of the Chicago White Sox baseball team, uh, in, in Bill Veck, and I think he was in 1948, hired a player uh, who then they would call him a but they would call a little person. He was like that tall, and so his strike zone was this big. So he's going to walk every single time. He's only going to pinch hit because he's going to be slow because his legs are shorter. He was given the number seven eighths. Just funny. Uh, and he batted once. But there was no rule against that. And that is a rule. <laughs> Baseball has a bunch of rules about mocking, making a mockery of the game. And then the young player, they make a mockery of the game. That was 
There was, it used to be hockey, this has happened too, penalty shot, right? About 35% of the time a, a player scores on a penalty shot. So the coach of the Peterborough Peets in the Ontario Hockey League, who eventually coached the Toronto Maple Leafs, Vancouver Canucks, et cetera, that named Roger Nielsen, read the rule and it said there has to be, it didn't say a goaltender, it said a player. He, he went, okay, fine, I'll put a defenseman out, he'll come out from the crease, pump check, luck, and then penalty shot's over. He did that like three times and they changed the rule in hockey. No one thought about it because it's like, well, of course there's a net, there's a goalie. What else would I put there? Well, a defenseman to skate out really fast, knock the guy over and take the puck. Penalty shot. <coughs> and I've seen this in soccer, right? Um, the soccer's weird in a lot of ways, but because it has very few rules. It's only like 15 laws of the game or something like that. When you take a penalty, as soon as the shot's taken, the game's on again, unlike hockey, where you the whistle's blown. So I saw, I forget what team this was. Guy's running up to take the shot, and then another guy from this team, because he's now started, runs up behind him and shoots over there. And that's completely legal. No one thinks of it, and now everybody knows it could happen. Pretty great. So he says, Bunt is reductionist. Explain the nine-dot problem to me using the Wundtian approach. You kind of can't. He also wanted to talk about psychogenesis. That's, that's what we're talking about. Which means that it's, it's about development. First person to say we should be studying the changes in cognition over time. <coughs> changes. First cognitive developmentalist, he said. Where these works work at. So cognitive developmentalists. Okay, so this is going on in Germany, but this German influence, because Wundt had hundreds of PhD students, goes global. Literally hundreds of PhD students. And I bet you're going to find, when you do the academic genealogies of our department, that some of us go back to Wundt, because most psychologists go back to Wundt, or James. So Titchener writes a paper in 1898, and he talks about how psychology should be structuralist. In other words, it should be like anatomy and not physiology. And he says you have to understand the structure before you understand the function. Now today, many of you have taken things like evolutionary psych with me, or, or, or uh, brain behavior, as it used to be called, or animal behavior. And I talk about Tim Bergen's four whys, the idea of cause and function. So today, biology doesn't think like this. And in fact, then biology didn't think like that. But it's very common with psychologists. They think they know more biology than they do. Right? It's, which, it's different now. We get a lot more training in things like biology, evolutionary biology now. They didn't used to. So understanding structure must precede understanding function. So let's screw function. Let's care about structure only. There's Tishner. He was English, educated at Oxford. You can't get more English than being educated at Oxford. And he eventually gets a job at Cornell University. But he becomes, but he, he really loves his Englishness. He's very English. Now, this has, there are good, good things about that, and there's some not so good things about that, of course. So he gets his PhD from Bunt and goes to Cornell. and while he's influenced heavily by Wundt, 
Wundt didn't say these things. This is Kitchener's idea of Wundt. I have a theory that Kitchener actually didn't speak German. <laughs> he just went, yeah, a lot in lab meetings, and they went, yeah, here's a PhD. I don't think that's actually true, but it sort of feels that way, because when you read Wundt and you read Kitchener, they're so different. There he is. He starts a group called Kitchener's Experimentalists. First of all, you don't ever start a group and name it after yourself. That's really says you got a big ego. Seems to me. There he is. <laughs> oh, yes, very good. Very good. <laughs> he leaves the APA. The APA starts in like the 1890s. He leaves. He's like, oh, yes, of course, it's much too eclectic. Too many people interested in things that are not experimental. I will even stop my own society. I will call it, I will name it after myself. This happens. <coughs> There's a group called the American Psychological Society, APS, that left the APA in the early 90s. There's the Canadian Society for Brain Behavior and Cognitive Science that left the Canadian Psychological Association in about the same time, 1990. I was one of the people, I was a graduate student, I voted on that actually, which is kind of fun. I went to CPA once, and it was just uh, clinicians with really nice cars and a bunch of us academics going, I don't know why I'm here. Now, I will say that I wasn't really at CPA. I just snuck in because they check ID at CPA. And it's like $400 for registration. So I'm not paying that. So I went under the one talk. So the, the secret, what you do is you get a badge from another conference that you've been to. And you put it on, and you kind of walk in with your arms sort of half over it like that, and just walk in. And then you go to a talk on counting in monkeys, and there's nine people. Only nine people. There's thousands of people at this conference. It's like, I shouldn't be here. We don't belong in the society. So I get his idea here. I'm not a big Titchener guy, but I'll say that that's okay. Naming it after yourself is a little weak. Um, and they had sort of informal annual spring meetings. Um, and they discussed research and promoted experimental psychology. That all sounds great. I like going and hearing papers presented. That's fun. Of course, no girls allowed. Because <laughs> um, it's like an English gentleman's law. thing is, you might say, well, maybe there weren't any woman psychologists. I'm not true. Especially in the States, there were all kinds of women academics that were doing psychology. So, yeah, this isn't good. <sighs> Judging them now, at the time, still it's shitty because people, other people were like, no, women, they're fine. They could come to our conference. Why wouldn't they come to our conference? And he's like, no, of course not. It's a gentleman only. It's a little weird. So he's a structuralist and he wants to talk about immediate conscious experience, systematic experimental introspection. So Kitchener has to train you how to observe your own thoughts. Yeah, okay, Wundt did that. But Wundt was a lot more... Uh, I don't want to say. Wundt was a lot more... I want to say unbiased, but that's not quite the word I want to use. And systematic might be systematic, actually, even though he calls this his idea of systematic experimental introspection. Yeah, let's go with systematic. Kitchener was more think like me, right? So I don't think I think that's a good thing. Um, 
So he talks about the elements of human conscious experience. Oh, we're starting to get away from, we're starting to get into what Wood wanted to study using a different approach, but we're going to try to do it using introspection. This is where the introspection thing psychologists get upset about. This is where we, where we don't like it. Now, he said sensations are the basic elements of perception. No one's going to argue with that. Then he talked about the attributes things have, the quality. The quality is like, is it a sound? Is it a, <coughs> is it a vision? You know, whatever. Intensity, we know that is duration. And the cleanness. I'm oh, sorry, clearness. I always say it's clean. Clearness. So is there interference? Is there, uh, are there other stimuli available? Those are all good. That's not unlike what. Then we get to this image idea. And images are the basic elements of ideas. This is where the problem with introspection comes in. Because now I'm getting to higher order processes, and I'm saying this is how my mind works. And you cannot argue with me, can you? If I say that I think like this, and I imagine a flowing river of ideas sitting on boats, you can't say, no, I don't. Because I can just say, yes, I do. I just did. Oh, that's not good. Okay, so that's now we lose the objectivity. And the, attribute, the attributes of images are the same. The clearness goes away, but we still have images. And this is really an issue here. Because I can't tell you if I have an image or not. Well, you can't externally test if I have an image or not. Let's say that. He said affective states are about basic elements of emotions. Yeah, that makes sense. But he said there's only two qualities here. Things are either pleasant or unpleasant. So it's got everything is a mix of pleasantness and unpleasantness. Again, that's very dogmatic and hard to test experimentally. Unless you say, that's what Titchener said, so it's okay. And this is, again, where the problem happens. So let's think about Titchener. Um, he talked about studying the generalized adult mind. And I'm certain he meant men only, because Titchener was that kind of guy. And he probably meant white men only, because that's probably what he meant. I'm, I never saw that written down, but I'm certain he meant men, for sure. Because um, only adults can be trained properly. You don't study individuals. Like, you know, we could get you an experiment. And many of you, I'm sure when you were in first year, participated in experiments. Can you come in and somebody gives you a questionnaire, or you study a list of words? No, not with Titchener. You study yourself and your colleagues only. That's it, right? So experimental psychology could not include the study of children because they are not mature enough, or non-human animals. They're interesting topics, but they're not psychology. So structuralism happily becomes isolated. People are like, these guys at Cornell are jerks. They say they can only study themselves. You have to have special training from their, from their master, who's named the society after himself. And when Kitchener dies, it dies. He had a lot of influence, though. So much so that when behaviorism comes along, it's because there people, at least Kitchener guys are jerks. Also, it's not scientific anymore. It's the problem of introspection, right? The biggest problem here is that you have to be trained by Kitchener, that's the first problem, and he's going to have his biases. But the second problem is we're dealing with complex cognition, not very basic things. And complex cognition can't just be known with introspection. 
and it's not falsifiable. Excuse me, false, falsifiable. His lasting contribution, though, is he, he becomes, he's, he advises a lot of PhD students who go on and do important things. Um, and the idea of some of these methods before you get to the stuff of <coughs> cognition are pretty good. And he brings the German influence to America, though he messes it up. And he was an advocate for basic lab research in psychology, which wasn't a thing yet in North America. So we can say good things about him. We also have to look at his flaws and besides the sexism and everything. The biggest flaw here is the taking introspection too far. Okay, okay questions about Titchener? So conclusions. Uh, if there were no Germans, there'd be no psychology. Like, that's dead true. We have to give them all kinds of credit. Uh, Germany was the <coughs> industrial and scientific <coughs> powerhouse of the world uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. It was a very important country. Uh, it is today as well. But it was, like I said, if you were in university in the 1800s, you learned to speak Latin because you were supposed to be an educated person, and you learned to speak German because you had to read scientific journals. And it was printed in German. Just kind of like how now, you're lucky, you all speak English. But everything is published in English. So when you go to university, you go to graduate school in the sciences, a lot of times your classes are done in English, even if it's a French language university or a German language university or a Japanese university. A lot of your classes are going to be, we've got to do this in English because the papers we read are in English. Like that, it was German. So, and as I said, their influence kind of goes away around, you know, oh, you'll notice this. Sometime around 1914, when World War I starts, um, Germany would have an even bigger influence if we didn't have a couple of giant world wars uh, last century. All right, questions about that? Good?
Thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da- uh, Dr. Dave Brodbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh- uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me, and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music; they're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next time.